Hey folks, and welcome to episode 173 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode of the podcast, we have a really fantastic interview with Jerry Boyer. Jerry is a good friend of Theopolis and has thought for several decades about how a Theopolitan reading of Scripture applies to the world of economics. We really hope that you enjoy listening in on this conversation, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to this special edition of the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart. I'm here today with Brian Motes, and I have our Executive Director, John Crawford, lurking somewhere in the background. Uh, it's a special edition because today we have a special guest, Jerry Boyer. Uh, Jerry is a friend, uh, supporter, and encourager of uh, Theopolis, and uh, he also has a, a number of a very, a very wide and uh, a very broad uh, resume that I won't take time to uh, review entirely. Uh, Jerry is the founder and president of Boyer Research, which is a uh, financial advising company that he runs along with members of his family. He writes uh, for Forbes.com and he's written for and appeared uh, written for other publications, online publications, and elsewhere, and also has appeared regularly on radio and TV in various venues. Uh, he was the founder of the Allegheny Institute for Public Policy in Pennsylvania, which was a, a, a state and local uh, public policy organ for many years. He serves as a, de uh, serves as a deacon in the Episcopal Church, uh, and he has an STL from the Collegium Augustinianum, on, did, did his work on uh, the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, he's a longtime student of the Bible, and particularly a student of the Bible in its relationship to economics. Uh, he's also a longtime fan of Biblical Horizons and James Jordan, so he has a deep connection with the work here at Theopolis. Uh, and uh, we have Jerry here today primarily to talk about his work on the economics of Jesus, which is a topic that he's spoken on and uh, he's been studying for a number of years. Uh, Jerry, welcome to the Theopolis podcast. It's wonderful to have you with us. It's uh, great to be with you, even the, l the lurking John. <laughs> Before we get into the, the main topic, uh, which will be on the Gospels and Jesus' teaching on economics, uh, I wanted you to uh, get you to talk a little bit about what you do at your company, Boyer Research. Uh, this, is not, this is not like a, a, an Amway ambush trying to get people to uh, listen to our podcast and then sign them up with Boyer Research as their financial advisors. Uh, but you've, you've talked, to, talked with me about this in the past, and I think your approach to these things is, is very interesting, particularly in the way that you're trying to bring uh, Christian and biblical perspectives to bear on the way that you go about analyzing uh, investment opportunities and the way you go about advising people in their investments. And uh, tell me a little bit about Boyer Research. Yeah, I'm happy to. And um, even if I wanted to sell something, I don't really think I, I could because we're not financial advisors. I think we're more advisors to advisors. So yeah. we, don't we don't have retail clients. We don't help you with your 401k or something like that. Um, it's more like we would help a company that manages money. So your advisor would put your money with some fund and we would be people who would help the people who run that fund solve certain problems. So we're pretty far away from, from the client, um, although we think about the client a lot. Um, what, what we do is we create mathematical and computer models 
that help allocate financial capital um, to where the principles of human creativity, um, based on the idea that humans are made in the image of God, are honored. So it may seem strange that not everybody does that, but not everybody does that. Not anybody does that. Um, but companies and countries where we act like human beings are made in God's image and have tax policies and regulatory policies and a rule of law framework and property rights and low corruption and a whole environment that acts like people are made in God's image and since God is creative, they're supposed to be creative and since God changes the world, they're supposed to change the world. Since day one is good, but we can keep going and have good, 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 and very good, this betterment, improvement approach um, is that's a place where investments tend to do better over the long run, which kind of makes sense, right? If you've got, if you've got a human flourishing and human productivity and growth and dominion going on, those are places where if you invest, you will over the long run tend to do better and have a better return and a higher probability of getting a good return. So what we do is we just take those basic principles, like currency should be sound, and uh, the rule of law should be consistent, and tax policy should encourage entrepreneurship and growth, and so should regulatory policy, and uh, just apply that to the cre- creation of portfolios. Apply that in a real money investment situation. Um, and we largely what we're focused, to, focused on is selecting countries, or deselecting them, um, saying this is not a good place to put capital. This is this is not this is not a steward who ought to get your money. And also selecting companies because the thing, same thing applies at a company level. That the um, CEO of a company is really a steward of the shareholders' wealth, just like we're stewards of God's wealth. Um, and if they don't have that mindset, if they're a master of the universe and they act like it's theirs and they lie to shareholders about how well they're doing and they set up barriers between them and the shareholders about whom, whose money this is, we demerit them and steer capital away from them. Um, so this is all informed, obviously, by a biblical worldview um, and not a biblical worldview in the very broad philosophical sense, but a biblical worldview in a kind of a feet on the ground kind of sense that you get from reading a Bible, which is not really a very abstract book. It's a really feet-on-the-ground historical book with physical concrete details. Let me ask, can you give me an example or two of where your method of analysis would diverge from uh, what what another researcher or financial advisor might how, how he might assess the situation. How would, your, how would your approach differ? For example, would there be differences on the way you evaluate tax policy? Everything I said would be different than the way the industry does this. Um, the, the industry focuses, when, when, the in, when the industry invests internationally, they put most money with the countries that have the highest or the biggest stock market. Um, that's called cap weighting. So it's backward looking and it has a kind of a bias towards bubbles. Um, same with stock, uh, you know, allocation. Big, bigger companies get more money. But the fact is that if a company is bigger, and I mean bigger in terms of the valuation of its stock market, one of the things that makes it bigger is to get really overvalued. So it tends to follow the crowd. Almost all stock market and internationally and, and domestically is about looking to the crowd for wisdom. Um, our approach is about establishing a plumb line 
Um, so, I mean, if you want, I, if, if this is too specific example, feel free to edit it out. But, um, you know, people were absolutely in love with the company Tesla. It was, mm-hmm. hadn't made any money. Um, it was extremely expensive. Um, there were signs that it wasn't being straight with its shareholders uh, when reporting financially, that it wasn't really being a steward. And there were all sorts of structural things which had high concentrations of power. The CEO was also the chairman of the board and uh, had set up the board in such a way that the board really worked for him rather than the other way around. So it wasn't very Presbyterian in its governance, right? It didn't have a board of – the board of elders weren't really the elders, right? They weren't really in charge. But it had been hyped to the skies, um, and it's obviously had a bad time in the past year. But <laughs> up, you know, up until a year ago, it was seen yeah. as just the, the future. So you get caught up in the emotion of the crowd. A lot of this is, is, is the crowd usually right? And so the approach that uh, we take is to say, no, the crowd is usually wrong, it can be right once in a while. You don't just go the opposite of the crowd, but you have to have a plumb line. And these plumb lines are taxes should be flatter rather than more um, uh, progressive because you shouldn't punish people for getting more successful. And there's no progressive tax um, in the Torah. Now, I know, you know, you, I can't just take Deuteronomy and apply it right to us. Or some people think you can. I don't think you can. I think there's principles there, though. But you don't. You have a tithe, which is a flat tax, and then you have per capita taxes. Um, so you don't really have, I think, a biblical warrant for progressive taxes. Uh, but you can have progressive taxes, and for the short run, that might make deficits go lower, and some advisors might say, oh, deficits are really important, and so we're going to, you know, we're going to allocate more capital to someone. Um, so we would look for lower and flatter taxes. You know, in First Samuel 8, 10% was a warning that there'd be a tyranny. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's nobody I know in, in the world with taxes that low right now. Yeah, <laughs> on income. Um, I mean, some some of the Eastern European countries, some of them are doing quite well, by the way, might have a 16% flat tax. Mm. Um, so we would differ. Pretty much everything I said would would not be used by a, a money management companies or macroeconomic consulting firms um, and advisors. And it's interesting when I talk to advisors, they think that money is being allocated that way by the big funds, but these big funds are not really paying attention to anything like that. They don't allocate more because taxes are low or because money is sounder. They allocate more because in the past, up in, you know, um, the, the crowd has allocated more. So I just think about what it says in Proverbs, don't follow the crowd to do evil. Now, I'm not saying that it's evil to allocate according to cap weighting. That would be overstating the point. But I think part of the principle of that passage is the crowd ain't so smart. Um, and is often wrong, and you should only pay attention to it in the sense that when the crowd is really hyped up for something, you should probably be a bit more skeptical and look at the fundamentals more closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, before we started uh, recording, uh, we were chatting about uh, Turkey that uh, was looked like it was a, you said it looked like it was a good place for investors to put their funds the last year, that's not been the case. Is that, would that be an example of something where your method of analysis would have spotted things that other analysts would have overlooked? No, unfortunately, that's an example where our method of analysis, um, how do I put it, uh, needs improvement. Okay. Um, so in general, when something is cheap, it's, it's better to buy it. 
than when something is expensive, whereas almost the whole rest of the industry buys when it's expensive. But once in a while, you buy something cheap, and it fully deserved to be cheap. Um, and Turkey at the beginning of the year would be an example of that. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a lot. So I mentioned that to you as a current you know, focus of analysis. Right. How can you spot things? You know, sometimes the crowd is right. Sometimes the crowd panics, and it's actually something really scary is going on, right? So how can you spot countries which maybe their economics is pretty fundamental? Turkey was growing fine, um, and it actually had shifted more in some pro-free market directions, but it was moving towards autocracy, and it had done some really foolish stuff you know, using um, the Quran to justify the creation of a financial bubble, um, Recep Erdogan, the president, you know, for life of Turkey, uh, basically said, well, the Quran forbids riba, forbids, you know, interest, which means I'm going to instruct the central bank to really lower the interest rate because that's closer to zero. Therefore, it's more Quranic. Well, I mean, that's nonsense. Um, but what it does is it created more borrowing because there was more money, cheap money. So mm-hmm. we talked about the bubble here with the Fed. I mean, they had a much worse bubble. Um, and then bubbles burst. Um, and uh, the, the problem with bubbles is at the time that the bubble is worst, it is also most emotionally compelling. Mm. So, um, you know, um, Sir Isaac Newton spotted the financial bubble of his day and said, this is terrible, this is silly, how can anyone believe it? And then it got bigger and bigger, and at the very end, he invested in it because the emotions <laughs> overcome you. Because the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? Um, so you have to really have models and principles in place so that when everybody says that pets.com is just going to take over the world, you just say, yeah, I want to, but I'm not going to. Um, or when it's the year 2008 and people are talking about markets going down to zero and they're talking more about buying shotguns than they are about buying stocks and everyone's terrified that that's actually, you know, you have to overcome that. And if the proposition is a good one, then you invest in it. So I wouldn't consider Turkey a success story. I would consider Turkey a, hmm, we need to learn more, um, always improving, and learn more about how to spot risky things that aren't in the economic metrics but might be in the political metrics. And there, there were certainly signs. There's a state fragility index that you know spotted Turkey as being at risk. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't mean to bring up a sore subject, but I, I, think, that, I think that's actually uh, very much to your credit you realize that you have a, a model that needs improvement and you're constantly tinkering with it and working on it. So the kinds of things that you'd be trying to work more into your model would be the political factors, religious factors perhaps in Turkey's case? Yes. Right. Yes, and there's some complex stuff that probably wouldn't be interesting to a Theopolitan audience, but there's some stuff that goes on when the dollar gets too strong, too much winning, um, you know, it can cause havoc with other countries around the world because the dollar, even as imperfect as it is, is a reserve currency. It's treated by the world as a plumb line. And yeah. when there are distortions in its value, that creates waves of distortion. It's like, and I think it's in Ezekiel 37, the story about um, how Egypt was a tree and then God cut it down because it become proud, right? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. then he raises up Assyria that people rest in the branches of those trees so there, there are these hegemonic powers in biblical history. seems to be part of God's plan, or at least as was then, to let a power rise up, even if it's imperfect, 
so that the smaller powers can rest in its shade and and the birds can nest in its branches. Obviously, I think Jesus is tapping into that in the parable of the of the one of the parables of the kingdom, the mustard seed. Um, that seems to be a, a, a dynamic of global history. So there are hegemonic powers. You know, before us, there was Great Britain. Before Great Britain, the Netherlands. Before the Netherlands, Spain. Um, where you know all the all the rest of the nations are affected by what we do. We keep them in the shade, or we become rotten. Um, and the United States is clearly one of those hegemonic powers. And there are all sorts of unintended consequences when we have fluctuations or uncertainty. Um, or bad governance or bad rhetoric about governance, it sends waves of disruption around the world that are really complex and hard to track. And that, and Turkey is part of victim of that too. They borrowed in dollars because we created this flood of dollars, you know, in 2009, whatever. We flooded dollars into the system because we wanted to stimulate growth, which didn't really work. Well, what happened is a lot of countries around the world borrowed those dollars. Um, and then under Trump, with some improvement in tax policy, the dollar got a lot stronger. So now they have to pay back these really much more expensive, much more valuable dollars. So there's been a shift. So between the time they borrow dollars and the time they pay them back, there's been a pay them, pay them back. There's been a shift in their value, and they're now it's now a much harder burden to bear. I told you I wouldn't talk about it because it's too complex. But I but that anyway that's yes. that's the story, and that's causing havoc around Latin America, and it has it did under Reagan too. Um, and so there's, if you have a biblical understanding of the, of God's system of hegemony, which of course I think his plan is for the kingdom to have that hegemony, for, for Christendom to be the place that the animals can rest in the shade of and the birds can nest in its branches. Um, but right now the quasi Christian United States is playing that role. Yeah. Well, I think you have one theopolitan interested in that. Uh, I see. I see our lurker, John, over in the corner, and he's, he's, he's nodding with his whole body as you're talking. It's, it's quite, <laughs> yeah, it's a little disturbing. <laughs> it's funny, one of my uh, first, uh, on, well, uh, big boy entrepreneurial ventures, um, in uh, first business I jumped into um, back in 2001, I picked up a book, and I don't know where I picked it up, but it was called The Integrity Advantage. And... I thought to myself, huh, the integrity advantage. And then, you know, I think it was a couple of years later, I picked up this, The Speed of Trust by Stephen Covey Jr., I think it was. And I thought to myself, um, you know, all of a sudden we're having to talk about these concepts um, rather than just take them for granted. And, you know, you come to learn that um, there, is, there is real advantage um, in aligning to... Uh, you know what the Bible has to say about all these things, including how you run your business and uh, economics in general. And to the extent that um, you can uh, carry that out in your your business life, uh, it, it actually is an advantage. So it's it, that's kind of a microcosm of maybe what you're talking about. It has to do with large companies and, and countries. Yeah, it I, it is an advantage. Um friend of mine, whose name is escaping me at the moment, uh, from the Kern Family Foundation, uh, wrote a couple of books about John Locke. I'll remember his name. Anyway, he, he says that a biblical worldview is an inside advantage in the world, not just in the world of business, maybe not even especially in the world of business, but the Bible gives us the truest view of human nature available um, and the broadest view of human nature available. Um, and if Christians are not better at 
fill in the blank, human activity, it's only because we have lobotomized ourselves so that we think of the Bible as only fire insurance and life insurance or, you know, in guide to internal emotional life or something like that. If, if we've like distanced ourselves from the enormous amount of insight about human nature and the nature of the universe, um, if, if, uh, that, that would be the only thing. One of the things I'd love to write is just I, if you look at behavioral finance and look at what things people do that make them bad investors, because most people are bad investors. The average investor loses money. Um, so do-it-yourselfers are terrible investors. Behavioral finance is figuring out what are our little glitches. Well, we buy what already went up. We, we look at our neighbor's returns and try to mimic them. That's covetousness. Um, we give up on something too early in many cases. I mean, of the fruit of the spirit, it's obviously about a lot more than investing. It's about the very core of your life. But if people, if people had those, I don't like the word values because it relativizes it. If people had those virtues when they were investors, Christians would be the best investors and best entrepreneurs in the world. Because the things that tend to trip up investors and entrepreneurs, covetousness, lack of patience, following the crowd are things that um, the fru- that are the opposite of the fruit of the spirit they're not christian virtues so if we practice our christian virtues all the time now I, what i find is in reality is christians are more than average nervous about wealth um, and afraid of risk and afraid of investment always just we're always just on the verge of a great collapse and there's a dom- domination in christian circles of it's just this is the year where it's all going to collapse, going back to the 1970s. Um, so I think that spirit of fear, which I don't think really is a fruit of the spirit, which always has people just buying nothing but gold or survival gear or the rest of it, um, it makes us actually worse investors than than um, the world in general. Um, and I can get why we're fearful, because we see how far the United States has strayed from God's law, but I think we also don't see the degree to which saved up capital of the past can keep a culture going for a lot longer and God's loving kindness and patience with us that he doesn't just smite us, you know, once we get out of line a little bit. But there's a process of working with us and of allowing the church to engage with the culture and reform from within, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's an advantage to have a Christian worldview, I think, in any area of life. And since this is the area of life in which I focus, I see it clearly in the area of investments and finance. So, Jerry, you did bring us back to the topic that we really wanted to talk about, because you mentioned Jesus a couple of times there. Uh, you mentioned the parable of the, uh, of the mustard seed. You get us back to the Gospels. And you also talked about Christians having kind of this ambivalent attitude toward wealth, which would... Uh, uh, many people would point to Jesus' teaching as uh, the source of that. After all, Ludwig von Mises told us that uh, Jesus is a socialist. His, his economics teaching is, is hopeless. It's a non-starter. And uh, that's the topic that you've been talking about recently. And what I've just said is not the, my, my, partic- my actual views on things. But uh, t- tell us a little bit about how you got into the, uh, into the topic of Jesus and economics. Um, well, in some, I, I, I came in through multiple avenues. By the way, I should say that was a younger Mises. That was the European Mises because he had never heard a sermon, uh, or read anything about the Gospels that didn't portray Jesus as a socialist. Then, mm. when he, to get away from the Nazis, he emigrated to the United States. 
he um, heard sermons um, which were not socialist Jesus, and he thought, maybe I need to rethink this Jesus. And mm. I think there's some indication that he became a Christian. Um, mm. He started reading Karl Barth, um, which might not be in our center of our wheelhouse, but given the environment of the time, uh, is probably the best available to an educated European, mm. um, and began to rethink all that. Well, I guess, you know, part of it is um, Theopolis, um, you know, way back 30-some years ago, listening to Jim Jordan's um, lectures on Matthew 24, alerted me to the idea that um, everything that Jesus said didn't break down into two categories. I mean, as an evangelical, kind of the, the way I always heard it is basically you could take all Jesus' statements and they're you know, about one thing or the other. Here's the one about how to be saved, and here's the one about the end of the world. Um, uh, so that that's all he talked about. And that he wasn't saying anything about Jerusalem or Israel, um, except the Israel that would come into existence in 1948, the new Israel, um, that version of the new Israel. Um, so it was a shock to me to see that Jesus in Matthew 24 uh, seemed to be talking a lot about things that were going to happen within a generation. So he's talking about his own countrymen and his own country. Um, and so that was about these, about the Olivet Discourses and about some of the prophetic, you know, utterances. But like a mustard seed, that idea, once it gets in, you start looking at other passages and saying, wait, hold on. Maybe this is about his time too and his place. And what you find is once that, once that seed or let's say leaven gets in, what you see is that there are a lot of passages that are much more easily explained as Jesus talking about the geopolitics and socioeconomics of, you know, 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. than about the end of the world. Um, and so once you have that shift in lens, it's sort of like you go to the eye doctor, is that better click, is that better click? It's like, okay, that's, that's a lot better. Now I'm going to read other things with these lenses. Um, and so that kind of opened me up to the idea that Jesus really did come for the children of Israel. He might send his disciples out into the world, but he really came for Israel um, and was warning them and was not just infinitely knowledgeable, not just omniscient, but also smart <laughs> and understood his times um, growing up there um, at the border between Issachar and Zebulun, understood his times. Uh, knew what Israel ought to do, and knew what Israel would do, and knew what would happen to Israel because it didn't do what it ought. Um, and so that kind of was a shift in perspective for me. Then, you know, as someone who I uh, spent some time in talk radio once in a while, someone would call in and bat, knowing that I was a Christian and also generally free market, would bash me with the, the bit about the camel and the uh, eye of the needle. Um, and it occurred to me then that well, wait, hold on a second. Jesus says that as a commentary on a conversation that he just had with a ruler, a rich young ruler, an archon, a member of the Sanhedrin, our equivalent, roughly, a senator. Um, so how in the world can you think that Jesus is arguing to give more wealth and power to senators uh, and other rulers when this negative, based on this passage, when this negative thing was said about a ruler? Um, so then I started to rethink and kind of reread the Gospels, not intending to revise interpretation of them, but just as someone who's reading the Gospels as a lector, you know, get, getting up um, 
Sunday morning and being a lector and then later as a deacon being the one reading the Gospels. I'm, you know, I'm spending a lot of time with the Gospels and a lot of it is just, you know, in reading it, just, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, what's going on here? There's something interesting happening. Jesus is not talking about wealth the way we think that he's talking about wealth, the way I also always used to think that he was talking about wealth, as merely a heart conversation, um, but that he is making socioeconomic observations about his time and place. So those two sort of paths got me there. And then at one point I thought, I'm in economics, I'm in finance, I'm a Christian, I ought to systematically study this. Um, that I think everybody in whatever field ought to read the Gospels and not forget their area of expertise. When I read the Gospels, I can't forget that I'm an economist. I can't unknow economics. So I decided to just let that loose and, and re- reread the Gospels as an economist and see what I could systematically understand. And that's what those are the three things that led me to here. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that we've talked about in the past is uh, your, your analysis of the situation in Galilee. There's been a good bit of research done on Galilee in the past couple of decades. Uh, Richard Horsley, we've uh, discussed before, and his work about the, the kind of the peasant economy of Galilee. Uh, I know your take on the situation that Jesus is in is quite different from that. Yeah, and so is that of all the archaeologists. Um, Horsley is an interesting fellow. I, I met him a few decades ago. We had sort of a friendly debate. I took his, his socioeconomic um, uh, observations for granted. But there's been a lot of digging in Galilee since he was writing in the 70s and 80s. And I think he was infected by a little bit of, I don't know, Fidel chic or Sandinista chic. You know, it's in the early 80s, a lot of academics were really caught up in the American empire and were looking for wisdom from the, uh, you know, from the third world in revolutionary um, terms. So I think there was a tendency to see Jesus that way. Uh, but we did a lot of digging since then. Um, you know, there's been a lot of digging in Galilee in particular. There's been digging in Nazareth. There's been a lot of digging in Sepphoris, which is the city that Nazareth is essentially, you know, a commute distance to. Um, and we have a really different picture of Galilee, uh, not, a, not a Galilee of Appalachia, uh, not a Galilee of poor, displaced peasants. Um, you, you know, the story that Horsley was talking about and others was that what you had are gigantic agribusinesses pushing people off their land. And so you had these landless peasant masses and Jesus tapped into them. Mm-hmm. Um, that story is true of the time, but not of the place. You have that south of Galilee in the Great Plain, right? Um, that's not the Galilean picture. That's the Judean and to some degree the um a Sumerian picture. Galilee hadn't gotten there yet, according to all the, according to everything we've seen in terms of archaeological remains. Uh, Nazareth was not a very poor town. Decent houses there, working class, decent houses. Um, so you have a fairly entrepreneurial Galilee. You have no examples at all in the archaeological uh, um, reserves of gigantic farms, consolidated farms. Instead, you have freehold farmers, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty, forty acres. So enough to live and sell. Um, there was industry there. Um, stone jars, for example, um, were manufactured and sent around the region. There was fishing, and not subsistence fishing, industrial fishing, uh, mass production of fish hooks, which were sold, uh, mass production of boats, mass production of fish. So you had, a, you had an economy that was um, just a lot more industrious, 
um, I, uh, kind of booming. Sepphoris had a building boom during Jesus' childhood and early adulthood. Tiberius, um, which was also quite close to Nazareth, had a building boom, uh, which would have been Jesus' early adulthood. It's almost inconceivable that Joseph and Jesus would, as tectons, I guess tectoi, tecta, um, uh, would have not worked on these building booms. By the way, they're not, uh, you know, they, that word tecton does not imply an unskilled carpenter. It's a skilled laborer, an artisan. They were highly in demand because, as you know well, Herod and Herod Jr. and Herod Jr. Jr., they were good Keynesians and were always engaged in gigantic public works projects. So there was a shortage of artisans. Herod would, would, was recruiting people and training them to be artisans. So you had a building boom. You had a lot of financial activity going on. Sepphoris was a financial capital. And remember, Nazareth is, you know, a morning's walk away from Sepphoris, a financial capital. You also had roads because Lower Galilee didn't have a lot of mountains. So you had a lot of trading roads going from, you know, what, what the area that used to be Babylon and Persia on over to the Mediterranean. So a lot of trade going through there. That's why it's Galilee of the Gentiles. There's a lot of mixing, a lot of trading. So, no, not a, not a peasant area. And Jesus, not from a peasant class. Um, in fact, ancient historians, non-Christians, describe artisans um, like Jesus as being part of a mediating class or a brokering class. And I say, I'm pointing out not theological, because we know that Jesus is the mediator um, between God and man. But he's from a, he was also, in God's providence, placed into a mediating class. An artisan could talk to the people in the city and quote their books, and he could talk to the peasants and the poor, and they would look up, look up to them. And you frequently have artisans playing roles in reform movements in the ancient world um, and in revolutions sometimes. So we get a picture of a Jesus who would have been much more sophisticated. When Jesus tells sophisticated financial parables, we don't have to wonder which redactor added that, that complex material. You know, they, there was a bank in Sepphoris. Um, Jesus would have been around this stuff. He would have been around not just Hebrew and Aramaic, he would have been around Latin and Greek as well, and probably other languages. Um, so he was a man who could straddle the world of metropolitan elites um, and of uh, poor peasants and be heard in both uh, places. So a middling class economically and a mediating class and um, a broker, a cultural broker. That, that's where God decided to put his son. He could have put him anywhere. He could have made him an Eskimo. He could have incarnated him, um, you know, in uh, Imperial Japan, which was probably the highest cultural point of the world. But instead, he sent him to Galilee of the Gentiles to be raised by a tecton. And I don't think that's just coincidence. I think that God the Father plans things well and uh, that that's part of the story. So uh, just to just to be clear, Sepphoris and Tiberias you mentioned those would be towns that would be booming because of the Herod's public works projects or even the the Roman Empire having outposts there. Is that that's is that what's fueling the boom? That, that, that would be that would be fueling Tiberius more Sepphoris because it w had been destroyed um, with the death of Herod the Great. Um, the Galileans got it in their head to have a revolt, um, and so they revolted against Rome. Um, and but they had not counted the cost and didn't have enough men to win the war, um, and so they lost the war and Sepphoris was destroyed, but then was rebuilt. So Jesus, I think, um, four A.D. is when the rebuilding starts and it lasts 
uh, into the 20s uh, AD. So that would have been a rebuilding project, but also mm-hmm. booming because this is a trade zone. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you want to get to the ports of Tyre and Sidon, you're going, there's a pretty good chance you're going through Lower Galilee. I mean, if you're part of the old, old world, the old, what's left of the Persian and Babylonian Empire, there's still a lot of people there. There's still a lot of trade going on. There's trade caravans. So it's a, it's a, it's on the way to the port. So you see that in history. You know, I was just, I just spoke in Seattle where you have ports, you tend to have trade, especially if you're, if they're not surrounded by mountains. Um, so. And so, so that, the Sephir story would be a rebuilding story, and the Tiberius story would be a Herodian building boom story. But just a general rising prosperity because of the trade. Right. So, in, and how does how does that setting uh, affect the way you're reading the uh, teaching of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, and so on? You mentioned he he tells sophisticated financial parables. So part of it would be just uh, how. The question of how would Jesus know this kind of stuff? How would he be able to come up with these kind of analogies and these, this kind of instruction? But you're also, I think, suggesting that uh, understanding that context would help to, uh, it, it, it contextualizes the actual content of what Jesus is trying to communicate. Yes. I mean, partly it's apologetic. How would Jesus have known these things? It must be a redactor, right? Mm-hmm. Well, no. Yeah. He would have known these things because he grew up around them. Um, Partly, it raises, at least in my estimation, a great deal, my esteem for the man. Um, now, we can't separate the man from God. We'd be Nestorians. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can distinguish the human nature from the divine because we're good Chalcedonians. Um, so they're distinct um, and unmixed. So Jesus, apart from being incarnate, was... Um, a great man um, and kingly material. Um, and so, you know, this, this, this context, let, let me just say something. This is going to be a little off point, but I've spoken on this topic a few times, and once in a while I get a theological pushback. And the theological pushback is that it comes from people who are very theological, systematic in their orientation, like, no, no, no. If you're telling me that Jesus was crucified for economic reasons, which I will tell you if we get to it, uh, why I think that's the case. No, no, no. He was crucified for our sins. He was crucified to make atonement for our sins. But that's a category confusion. If we say that Jesus was killed by a spear going into his side, although he's probably already dead by then, but we're not saying that he wasn't killed for our sins. We're talking about the cause and effect chain. Right, So none of this takes away from any of the theological content. It just adds a socioeconomic level. Um, God had certain means. In fact, I would argue that if we take the doctrine of the incarnation completely seriously, um, we don't just see a Jesus who took on an, an individual human nature. He took on, I think the Athanasian Creed says, a reasonable soul. He took on... Well, my reasonable soul includes social connections and economic skills and familial connections. And I, I don't know about everybody else, but my, my rational capacities and my soul includes a social matrix. Um, so if Jesus took on a reasonable soul, he took on a human nature. That means he took on a family, he took on a race, he took on a village, he took on an economic system, he took on a geopolitical system. Um, he, bore, he bore it all. Um, so... This, to me, this is just taking the incarnation 
and filling it in with more archaeological and economic details. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think I really spoke to your question. Can you repeat your question because I got off track, but I really yeah. wanted to get on the record saying that. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, you said you're, you're trying to set a more accurate context in Galilee, and that's, yeah. going, to, that's going to shape the way you're reading Jesus' teaching on, on uh, economic topics. So what is it about, how, does, how do you make that connection? What is the, the insights that archaeology gives into the situation in uh, Galilee? How does that help us to understand parables, oh, uh, teaching yeah. of Jesus, and so on? Well, I think what it does is it, it, it um, cues us in to the fact that we shouldn't be Gnostics and that place names and geography matter. So there's a tendency, even for the most sophisticated uh, biblical readers, to just sort of skim over the, the old-timey Bible-sounding city names um, and get to the real thing, which is what Jesus says. And the real thing isn't even the way he said it. The real thing is the kind of the moral point, you know, of the story. <laughs> but these, um, these place names matter. And each place name is a different economy. Uh, Capernaum and Bethsaida have differences between them, but they're similar. But, but they're very different from Nazareth, which is different from Sepphoris, which is different from Bethany, which is different from Jericho, and which is very different from Jerusalem. So instead of skimming over the place names to get to the theological idea, we know a lot about these places now. So every place Jesus goes, he's talking to a different economy. Sometimes the economy runs on fish. Sometimes the economy runs on buildings. Sometimes the economy runs on trade. And sometimes the economy runs on an exploitative ruling class via a corrupt temple. Um, which is obviously the Jerusalem economy when really, to a large degree, Judea. So once you start paying attention to where Jesus is when he says things, um, and also to the occupation of the person he's speaking to, then patterns emerge. And you see that Jesus talks very differently in entrepreneurial Galilee with a fair degree of decentralization in the economic system and in the property order. Um, I won't call it equality. There was no attempt at equality. Decentralization is different. Um, where you have a fairly decentralized economy with a lot of people who are owners, not hirelings. As opposed to as he travels down to Judea and getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, his rhetoric changes and the hostility to wealth increases almost geometrically as he moves towards Jerusalem. There are, there are no renunciations of wealth that I can find in the Gospels in, in Galilee. There is no confrontation with a rich young anything that we can find when he's up you know, in, in, near Nazareth and when he's um, in lower Galilee. That material starts, like with Mark 10, he leaves Galilee and he goes into Judea, and the confrontation with the rich young ruler, the confrontation with Zacchaeus the tax collector, um, certain discourses, um, and the confrontation with the money changers, all those occur as he gets closer to essentially the temple economy. Now, Theopolitans have been on this for a long time, that the, the wealth renunciations are tied to the temple. Jeff Myers has, has given three lectures about it, uh, and James Jordan has talked about the temple as, a, as in essence, the, 
the alpha form of the kingdom so that there's a focus on what's going on in the temple so that economic comments in the Bible are about the temple economy. You have material like that in your Revelation commentary. I'm not taking away from that. But what, I, what I'm saying is not only was the alpha form of the economy, but the parasite had gotten so big that it was in some sense bigger than the host. Judea really did run on the temple economy. Um, so it's not just theopolitan to see these denunciations as focused on the temple because the temple is the archetype of everything. It was economically practical to focus on the misdeeds of the temple because, the, because Jerusalem was a company town and the company was the temple. I think that's a good place to uh, bring this, uh, this episode to a close. Uh, for those uh, listening to this, we do have Jerry coming uh, at a future uh, podcast, and he'll tell the rest of the story. He's got Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, we know that Jesus is going to be put to death for economic reasons. Jerry has told us that. If you want to know the rest of this story, tune in to the next podcast. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.